This court is on fire. Welcome, dissidents. The Supreme Court is nearing the end of its term, so they have been releasing a lot of opinions with quite a few dissents. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. This week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. We are officially in the last week of the Supreme Court's term. Justice Breyer has announced that he will be retired effective tomorrow, Thursday, June 30th, at I think at noon or something like that. But we're here to talk about some of the big cases that have come out and their dissents. Boy, are there some big ones. Anastasia, do you want to start with one of the ones from last week? Well, last week on Justice Thomas's birthday, it must have given him great pleasure to write the majority opinion in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This was the big Second Amendment case that was up this year. What had happened was New York had prohibited possessing a firearm without a license inside or outside of the home. But what was unique about New York's law is it wasn't very easy to get a license. You could only get a license if you proved proper cause. That is a special need for self-protection that's distinguishable from the general community. I think it's important to talk about just how difficult it was to show proper cause. You couldn't just say, hey, I live in a dangerous community. I feel threatened. You know, my walk to work is sketchy. You had to show some sort of specific threat against you. So it effectively amounted to a ban on getting this permit to carry a firearm. And in a 6-3 opinion, Justice Thomas, writing for the majority again on his birthday, he wrote that, of course, the Second Amendment protects the right of law-abiding citizens to carry a common weapon and to, to bear arms without this interference. It's not really a right anymore if you have to go beg the government for permission and to surmount all of these hurdles. But what's really interesting, and I think that is just a very straightforward reading of the Second Amendment, but what's interesting is how he came to that decision. This is pretty radical. This is an overlooked decision, I think, in terms of constitutional jurisprudence, because typically when there is a right being abridged by a state or the federal government, the court's going to apply some level of scrutiny to see if the law has a means ends fit. Here, the court, the majority just throws out any level of scrutiny. It says the only thing that we're going to do is look basically at if there's a historical analog for the modern day restriction. So no more means and scrutiny. And that's kind of crazy because even First Amendment, even restrictions on freedom of speech get some level of scrutiny. And the court just said, no, we're not doing that anymore. Can I just interject a point about the tiers of scrutiny? What a great metal band name down at the tiers of scrutiny. This was one of the problems in the lower courts since the Supreme Court's landmark rulings in Heller and McDonald that the Second Amendment does indeed protect an individual right. The court left open the question of what level of scrutiny lower courts should use. And when Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh was on the D.C. circuit, he had floated this 
text and history, text history and tradition approach instead of, you know, subjecting it to rational basis, intermediate or strict scrutiny. So that was kind of an interesting development. But you're right, it is unique among the court's uh, jurisprudence. It's unique. And I'm not going to lie. I don't know how I feel about it, Elizabeth. I don't know that that originalism, as I understand originalism, it's sort of that Scalia type originalism. We see this with regards to death penalty cases where Justice Scalia said that the only forms of capital punishment that are prohibited now or any forms of punishment that are prohibited now are those exact practices that were prohibited at the time that the Eighth Amendment was passed. And I think that the Constitution doesn't prohibit certain practices. Instead, it enshrines certain principles. And those principles are what should be applied throughout the century, even though, you know, we may understand them to prohibit different things at different times. So I just I don't know about this, this idea that only those laws that existed at the framing of whatever amendment it is, are those that are acceptable now. I mean, it may end up being very good for liberty. I just don't know that that's a proper interpretation of the Constitution. It's it's wild. I mean, I'm not, don't get me wrong, tiers of scrutiny are arbitrary. They're made up. They're totally made up. <laughs> I am not a fan. But this is a this is an interesting alternative, and I don't know that it's the appropriate alternative. Well, we'll see how it plays out. I do want to talk about the dissent for one minute because this is dissed after all. Alito kind of goes after the dissent in his concurrence saying that the dissent spills a lot of ink written by Justice Breyer, joined, of course, by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor. The dissent spills a lot of ink talking about recent mass shootings, gun violence, gun accidents, etc., and Alito's basically like, what's the point? Are you saying that New York's law would have prevented any of those things from happening? You know, what is this? This isn't constitutional law. This is essentially virtue signaling or politics. And it's true. Well, and to go a step further, one of the mass shootings that Breyer discusses occurred in New York while this law was on the books. So the law did not prevent that shooting. If you just want to, you know, look at it from a policy perspective. Yeah. And yet here we are. There's quite a long screed about how guns are bad. A lot of citation to amicus briefs, by the way, in this case. I bet am amici were excited. Breyer goes on and on citing, and Alito does too, in his opinion, with amicus briefs on the other side. But anyway, you know, on and on about guns are bad. You know, the majority and the concurrences are saying that's irrelevant. Another interesting concurrence was Justice Barrett. She says, you know, she agrees in the outcome, but she has some concerns that there are some outstanding methodological questions that remain unsolved. For example, you know, if we're going to look at historical analog, how many years after the ratification of the relevant amendment is practice relevant? And what era should courts look at the time that the Second Amendment was enacted or the 14th Amendment? So she's like, we'll have to hammer some of this out. And I don't think we've resolved that question yet, but I concur. And I think that's true. Like you said, we'll see where it goes. There's a lot of uh, litigating to be done. Certainly. And for the Second Amendment being a fundamental part of the Bill of Rights, there have not been that many Supreme Court cases unpacking that right. So I think Justice Thomas had a, a dissent from denial of certain number of years ago where he compared, he tallied up the number of First Amendment and Fourth Amendment cases that the court heard in the period of time since it had last heard a single Second Amendment case. And, you know, it was just in the dozens for each of them. Okay, moving on. Unless you traveled to another planet in this past week, you've probably heard about what happened in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. This uh, at issue was a Mississippi law prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks with some exceptions and whether that could be squared with the Supreme Court's precedents, which prevent prevented states from regulating pre-viability abortions. 
So really big case, closely watched. Obviously, there was the leak of Justice Alito's draft majority opinion several weeks ago. And the leaked draft was basically word for word what was released in the final majority opinion. There were a couple of sections that were added because, of course, the leak, the draft did not include things like responses to the concurring opinions or the dissent. And I know that there are people on the Internet that did like red line comparisons and there were very few changes and not really any substance of changes from the leak. So the majority held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, and it overruled uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So it first tackles the constitutional question. It explained that since the Constitution does not include abortion as an enumerated right, you can look at whether it's protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause, which says, for those who don't have their pocket constitution handy, uh, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So this is known as substantive due process, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, as Justice Thomas explains in his concurrence. Some of us love substantive due process, but go on. The idea that there's processes, you have a fair hearing, you know the charges against you, things like that. But anyway, the court has used it to protect substantive rights for many decades now. And so basically, there are two categories of substantive rights that are protected. There are guarantees from the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, things like that. And then there are other fundamental rights that are not enumerated elsewhere in the Constitution. So the court, when it's using substantive due process, will look at whether a right is, quote, deeply rooted in our history and tradition and essential to the nation's scheme of ordered liberty. So the majority concluded that abortion is not such a right. And indeed, if you go back to Roe v. Wade, the court didn't use substantive due process to recognize a right to abortion. It instead said that parts of the first, third, fourth, fifth, and ninth amendments had, and I love this phrase, penumbras formed by emanation that create zones of privacy. So that's where the right to abortion came from. The court later recharacterized the right as being rooted in substantive due process. So that's the constitutional issue. The majority also considered whether, despite the constitutional defects of Roe and Casey, which was from the 1990s affirming Roe, whether it should continue to adhere to these precedents. And it went through its traditional uh, stare decisis analysis, which includes looking at things like the quality of the earlier court's reasoning, the workability of the rule, and reliance interests, among other things. And the majority ultimately held that these weighed strongly in favor of overruling Roe and Casey. There were concurrences. Justices Kavanaugh and Thomas both wrote, Kavanaugh basically boils down to the Constitution is neutral on abortion, so the court is right to return this issue to the people and the democratic process. Justice Thomas's is has been getting quite a lot of attention for his suggestion that the court revisit its past cases like Obergefell and Griswold versus Connecticut that rely on substantive due process. But I would point out that he has been a strong proponent of reinvigorating the privileges or immunities clause as a source of protecting unenumerated rights, which, you know, I'm sure that's music to your ears, Anastasia. Chief Justice Roberts joined the majority opinion's judgment, but not its reasoning. And he wrote separately explaining that he would have charted a middle course, getting rid of the viability standard and allowing the Mississippi law to stand, but not overturning Roe and Casey, just, you know, completely rewriting them. Then, of course, there is the joint dissent by uh, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan 
Republican, arguing that the court was wrong to throw out the balance that the court struck in Roe and Casey that allowed states to limit abortion after viability, but not before. For my part, I've always thought that the viability standard sounds a lot more like a legislative compromise than a constitutional requirement, but I digress. Uh, The dissent says that the result of the majority's decision, um, aside from, you know, sort of the scaremongering, women are going to die, birthing persons are going to die, I guess. The decision will result in the curtailment of women's rights and their status as free and equal citizens. The dissent leans heavily on how deeply entrenched Roe was as a precedent. You know, in confirmation hearings, we would hear a lot about super duper duper precedent and precedent upon precedent upon precedent and how many times it had been reaffirmed. But I think that the dissent really leans on that and less so on the actual arguments about whether the 14th Amendment or some other part of the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion. Before I invite your thoughts, Anastasia, just two additional things. The upshot of the ruling is that states are free to pass laws allowing or restricting abortion. It's no longer up to unelected judges to make determinations about whether certain regulations are undue burdens or at what point during a pregnancy the balance of interest shifts in favor of protecting the unborn child. Whatever you think about abortion as a policy matter, as a legal matter, it has bled into other areas of the law. Justice Scalia used to call this the abortion distortion because the court would distort its traditional rules when abortion was implicated. This came up in things like third-party standing, having more relaxed third-party standing to allow clinics and doctors to sue on behalf of future possible patients, allowing the creation of buffer zones around abortion clinics that disallowed some speech based on its content, but not others. It also, I think, negatively outside of, you know, directly the law in the courtroom, it's negatively affected the uh, judicial confirmation process since, you know, the 1980s, because judicial nominees have been asked about, as a way to get at what they think about Roe, they've been asked about precedent and tried to, you know, people have tried to get guarantees out of judge, of future judges um, about how they might rule. And so just in terms of how it has perverted the law and the confirmation process, I think it's, you know, putting aside my policy views, I think it's a good thing that uh, that it is no longer part of the Supreme Court's precedence. But Anastasia, I know you have thoughts. Oh, always, but especially here because substantive due process is my thing. And again, like whatever you think about abortion, there's some implications here for substantive due process. But before I get to that, you know, I do want to push back on the idea that what Dobbs does is give states free reign to restrict abortion, because I don't think that's actually true. I think what the opinion says is abortion is no longer considered a fundamental right. So now any restrictions on abortion will be subject to rational basis scrutiny. So all restrictions on abortion will still undergo some level of judicial scrutiny. It's just a very low level of judicial scrutiny. And to those who are outraged by that, I say, welcome to my hell, because, you know, this is what I've been dealing with in the economic liberty world for a really long time is I think economic liberty is a fundamental right. And yet it it gets nearly no protection in the court. For example, a judge just enjoined a very strict restriction on abortion in Utah the other day under rational basis scrutiny after Dobbs. So I do think that things, I don't don't know, this is just me off the cuff here, but I think, for example, a total ban on abortion, which did not allow any exception for a medical emergency to the mother, I think that, for instance, would fail rational basis scrutiny. I don't think legislatures have carte blanche to do something like that, but they are certainly more free to restrict abortion. 
And that's the upshot of this case. So it's just for everyone who's like, oh, the world's going to go to hell and now states are going to not even allow women to have medical emergency exceptions or, or exceptions for abnormalities to the fetus. I just don't think, first of all, it's not factually true. That wasn't true with regards to Miss Mississippi. Mississippi did have exceptions for both. But also I think that some of those things wouldn't even uh, survive scrutiny even now after Dobbs. So just calm down, everyone. Yeah. And if you look back just in recent years, some of the other abortion cases that have come up to the Supreme Court, like the Texas, not the the heartbeat bill with the private attorneys general provision, but the one that the court heard a couple of terms ago dealing with uh, trying to ensure that abortion clinics met, you know, some of the same health and safety standards that other outpatient clinic, medical clinics had to meet. And just the the sheer volume of, of science that the legislator was relying on and the record that they had and, you know, the horror stories from some of the clinics that they introduced when the legislature was debating that law. I just always thought it was crazy that they were trying to make it safer for women if they go to these clinics and it didn't matter because, you know, no matter how much of a record they had, it didn't matter because of the viability line and the undue burden standard. And, you know, there was evidence of like some clinics that had rats coming up through holes in the floor. And, you know, one where a patient died on a stretcher because they couldn't get her through the hallway. And I, I just always thought that was kind of shocking that there there was this record there, but that it didn't it didn't matter to the courts because of the way that the right was interpreted. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, People, they haven't actually looked at what this opinion does. And all that it does is it it no longer considers abortion a fundamental right, which this is all due to the tears of scrutiny. It all comes back to the tears of scrutiny. The tyranny of the tears of scrutiny. Exactly. Because fundamental rights get such protection and non-fundamental rights get nada. That's the problem. I think that's the origin of some of this distortion here, as you say. Getting back to that shocker here for some people, and I'm sorry if I offend people for having some nuance in this. I think abortion is unlike any other right. It's just it is factually. There's no other right that implicates another life or potential life, however you want to define it. Either way, there's no other right like it. And so it's really distorted everything because of the difficulty of, of well, what I view as a nuanced issue, at least. I know some people don't, and that's fine too. But I do. The problem is because of the difficulty with this issue, there's there's been a real hesitancy from courts and the Supreme Court to recognize any unenumerated right because they're worried that if they recognize unenumerated rights, it's going to somehow mean that abortion must be considered a right and that's going to lead to outcomes they don't want. And what I don't like from this opinion is that it's signaling, notwithstanding abortion, like abort, let's just not even, let's take abortion out of it, that the court is a little bit closing the door to unenumerated rights. And I don't think that's right. I don't think the Constitution only protects those rights that are specifically listed out in the Constitution. I mean, this was part of the ratification debates. It's it's enshrined in the Ninth Amendment. That's an inkblot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's an inkblot that we got to figure out. And I think we can figure out. And I don't like the idea of, of limiting unenumerated rights. And I don't think the Glucksberg test is right. The idea that we look at whether the right was only historically protected or whether it's implicit in our concept of ordered liberty or whatever gobbledygook the test is. And I think, I think ultimately that's bad for a lot of other unenumerated rights, including the right to earn a living. Of course, I know I'm a broken record here. And you can see that in the opinion with the justices shading Lochner. Need we really shade Lochner? Come on. 
leave Lochner alone. So that's that's something that I don't like with this opinion is and and also the just the dislike of substantive due process generally, because I think what again, whatever you have to say about abortion, substantive due process is merely at the idea that the government has to justify restrictions on liberty. It can't take a, away liberty without a good reason. I don't think that's radical. And I think properly understood that test is OK and nobody needs to be afraid of it. And we shouldn't be afraid of it just because abortion is a hard case or a hard constitutional case, I should say. And we fear that. So anyway, that's my soapbox, Elizabeth, is, you know, whatever abortion aside, let's not give up on substantive due process. Let's not give up on unenumerated rights. Before we move on, do you have any thoughts on how the elimination of Roe and Casey, how that will affect the judicial confirmation process? going forward. You think it's still going to be as contentious as ever? Oh, it could go one of two ways. It, it could be less contentious or it could just be like, oh, now we need to get people on the court who are going to overturn Dobbs, right? Or now, now, unfortunately, because we're seeing more calls for court packing. Are we just going to get more confirmation hearings out of all of this? It's, it's interesting. You know, throughout history, there's always been winners and losers. And in very few cases, has there been such outcry that we need to Pack the court to undo it. Usually people swallow their losses and move on to the legislative process or new litigation pushing the law another way. But here we have renewed calls for for court packing. I'm I'm sad about that. And I hope it doesn't I hope the result isn't to lead to more confirmation hearings. Well, we've been hearing about court packing for the past few years. So I, I think this is just the the latest excuse for why certain people want to pack. Them. Um okay, let's move on. School choice. School choice. Yeah. Also last week we got Carson v. Macon, which was a very anticipated case dealing with school choice, it dealt with a rather unique program because in Maine, some parts of Maine are so rural that they don't have their own public schools. In fact, I didn't know this. Fewer than half of the school districts in Maine don't even have their own schools. Because there's compulsory education, compulsory attendance in Maine, what the state has done is it has said that where there's no school in the school district and the school district hasn't contracted out with another school district, it will allow parents to designate a private school, and then Maine will transmit payments to the private school to offset the cost of tuition. However, since 1981, based on what would now be acknowledged as a misunderstanding of the Establishment Clause, the state has excluded private sectarian schools, religious schools, from that program where you can get reimbursed for attending a certain school. So that is the the state used to think erroneously before Zellman that if it allowed parents to get reimbursed for tuition to private schools, that would somehow violate the Establishment Clause. But that's been determined not to be true. Can I add one thing about the private schools. It's not just that parents would get money for a private school. It could be a private school anywhere in the world, not just in Maine. So I thought that was an, an interesting point that the state said what the program is for is approximating a Maine education. But that really is not the case. You know, if you're going to boarding school in Switzerland, that can you really say that that's a Maine education? It's not. But anyway. Totally. And even some of the Maine private schools weren't nothing like Maine public schools, right? Like private schools have all sorts of exceptions. They can admit whoever they want. They can not admit whoever they want. Have single sex education. Totally. And so it's just a farce to say this is what the program is aimed at is approximating Maine public schooling. That's just not true. But so the par two parents in this case bring a lawsuit saying that this law discriminates against religion in violation of the free exercise clause. And I thought this was fascinating. The state argues in response, well, in addition to a few other things, it says we're not discriminating based on religious status or use because it's not true that 
this is one of their arguments again, but I, I liked this one the best. Not that I liked it, but I thought it led to interesting consequences. They said, um, it's not true that all religious schools will necessarily be disqualified from the program. What happens is we have a bureaucrat who goes around and decides if the school is religious enough to be excluded. So some religious schools will get in. And I think that was a real problem for the state because that oral argument that led to a bunch of questions about, well, what makes a school too religious to you? And which religions would be let in and which wouldn't. And Justice Alito, who is by far now, I think, one of the most entertaining and best questioners at oral argument, came up with a real zinger where he said, imagine there's a school whose primary religious belief is all people are created equal and they believe that nobody should be subject to discrimination and that students are obligated to do charitable work. It's not a dogma. But these are principles we encourage to our students. And the attorney says, yeah, that's pretty much what a public school is. So we would totally allow that. And Alito says, well, I've just described Unitarian Universalism. So what you're doing now is discriminating between religions. And I was like, "Ooh, burn. Good one. And the state, of course, kind of tried to back off from that. But the point is, not only were they purporting to exclude religion, but they were picking and choosing between religions, which in many ways is worse. How much Jesus is too much Jesus in their school? Yeah. And why is uh, Buddha okay, but not Jesus? You know, one other thing I thought was interesting, Justice Alito has a question about, well, what about if a school teaches CRT? Are they allowed? And you just kind of let that float out there, kind of being like, isn't CRT a religion to some people? Hmm. thought that was interesting. I mean, he's he said he's a very interesting questioner. So yeah, in a 6-3 decision, the court holds that if a state is going to allow some money to flow through the choices of parents to private schools, the state cannot discriminate against religious schools. So they must be, religious schools must be included. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion. It's pretty straightforward opinion. Breyer wrote a dissent joined by Kagan and Sotomayor. Justice Breyer says this is going to cause a lot of discord in our society because people are going to wonder why their tax dollars are going to fund religious schools with which they disagree. You know, to which I say personally, welcome to America. My my money goes to a lot of things I disagree with. But if you, if you, if you want, if you don't want this sort of discord, then get the government out of the subsidization business. That's just inherent in subsidization. But I thought it was interesting that at oral argument, Justice Kavanaugh's response was, well, doesn't it also sow a lot of societal discord to exclude certain religions and not others? Isn't that also not a really great thing for the state to be doing? I think that's true. One last thing, Sotomayor wrote a separate dissent to say that the court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. I write only to add three points, which is basically that the court was wrong from the beginning with Zelman and is marching down a path towards religious theocracy. You know, she's had a hard term, so she's upset. Meanwhile, the majority is like, this is actually pretty limited. It's just a reaffirmation that you can't discriminate against religious entities. Yeah, I mean, it follows on several cases the court has heard in recent years, including the Montana school choice case where there was a tax credit scholarship uh, and an administrative agency in that state decided to exclude private schools that had previously uh, parents could send their kids there and, and make use of that scholarship. And then the agency said, no, that would be a violation of the establishment clause. And then there was the daycare case, the daycare run by a Christian church that 
wanted to apply for a grant to get a scrap tire resurfacing for its playground. And the state of Missouri said, oh, sorry, you can't even apply because you're run by a church. So this is, you know, just the next in. And, and I, I think Chief Justice Roberts has written, wrote all three of these opinions, just saying, look, you can't, if you're going to have this general benefit available, you can't discriminate just because uh, and you know an organization has a religious affiliation. One other thing about that I was going to talk about in the next case, but this is related, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg used to be fond of bringing this up as well, the, the famed wall of separation between church and state. Newsflash, it's not part of our constitution. That came from a letter Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists, reassuring them that the federal government would not interfere with their church, not that there would be this purging of religion from public life. But I think that's a good segue to the next case, which is Coach Kennedy, Kennedy versus Bremerton, which was from this week. And this is the case of a football coach at a public school, I believe in Washington State. He lost his job because he was kneeling in prayer on the field after games. So the school district said it would be an establishment clause violation to allow the coach to continue praying because a reasonable observer could conclude that this was the government's speech and not the coach's speech. You know, this was one of those cases that really blew up. It went to the Supreme Court twice. The coach was on, you know, the cover of all sorts of magazines. And it doesn't seem to me like it should have been that controversial of a case. You know, the the establishment clause is aimed at prohibiting the government from establishing an official religion and coercing people to engage in religious activity, not about stamping out individuals' religious expression in public. So the majority in Coach Kennedy's case was uh, the majority opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch. It holds that there is no conflict here between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The school district violated the coach's free speech and free exercise rights, so doing double duty, and it didn't have to have a duty to suppress this speech. The majority also points out that there was no evidence that the coach's behavior actually coerced any of the students to join him in prayer. But that brings us to Justice Sotomayor's dissent, which has pictures for those who like a, a visual to go with their Supreme Court opinions, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan. So Sotomayor says she, she begins it. This case is about whether a public school must permit a school official to kneel, bow his head, and say a prayer at the center of a school event. The Constitution does not authorize, let alone require, public schools to embrace this conduct. So sometimes when I read, you know, a majority versus a dissent, I wonder if they are just operating under very different facts. Because, you know, I've read a, a decent amount about the case, and th the coach was not kneeling in the center of the field, like during a game, when people were there. Sometimes it was well after the game was over, players were leaving. One time he even had left and came back to the field because he didn't say a prayer and he felt bad. And so he felt compelled to go back and he was literally by himself. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But Justice Sotomayor, I, I mentioned she has pictures in the dissent. So there are some pictures pictures with Coach Kennedy praying surrounded by players. But the record in the case says shows that these were the opposing team's players who joined the coach. So it wasn't even his own players. He wasn't coercing anyone. There's no evidence in the record that the students felt pressured, you know, to like get playing time. They had to pray with the coach. 
Um, like if maybe if that was going on, there would be a concern, but there's no evidence of that. So Sotomayor says the court sets us further down a perilous path and forcing states to entangle themselves with religion with all of our rights hanging in the balance. But speaking of entanglement, she says the majority overruled the famous Lemon test from Lemon versus Kurtzman, which Justice Scalia uh, once analogized to a ghoul in a late night horror movie that keeps coming back to life. So this is a test from the 1970s that the court had used for a number of years to evaluate establishment clause violations. Uh, and under this test, courts would examine a challenged government action, um, look at its purposes, its effects, and its potential for entanglement with religion. But it proved to be completely unworkable, and the court has stopped using it. And, you know, I don't think they've ever formally said it has been overruled, but Justice Sotomayor said, you know, the court is basically sub silencio overruling lemon. I think I probably need to get off the Twitters because I'm just what I'm mostly upset about is people's reaction to things. It's understandable. Law is sometimes a slog. Law is complex, but I just don't love the mischaracterizations of it. And particularly the ad hominem stuff. I think one thing that really frustrated me was I saw as one of the responses the idea that this court wouldn't have protected the coach's rights if he had been if he had belonged to any other religion. And I just think you have to be completely ignorant to the history of constitutional law to think that because I mean, this term in an eight one decision, the court upheld a religious protection for non-majority religion. Right. Like and historically, the court has done that many times. People of all faiths. I don't know. That's what's sticking with me is the misunderstanding of the court and its fairness and its previous applications of of this test. Whether it's intentional or just misinformed, but a lot of misinformation about, about the Supreme Court out there. One final case with a dissent that I wanted to mention, I, I just want to mention because we, br we previously talked about a Chevron case where Chevron did not come up, and we have now had a second case involving deference to agencies where the parties briefed the issue and then Chevron did not appear at all in the majority. And Justice Kavanaugh dissented, and this is Becerra versus Empire Health Foundation. And I just, I love this line from his dissent, which one phrase I think he cribbed from an earlier Justice Gorsuch. I don't know if it was something he said in an oral argument or if it made its way into an opinion, but Kavanaugh writes, both parties offer a dog's breakfast of arguments. Dog's breakfast is a Gorsuch phrase uh, about broad statutory purposes. But this case is resolved by the most fundamental prin principle of statutory interpretation. Read the statute. So with that, there are still two opinions we're waiting on. They'll come tomorrow, I guess, or they'll not come at all. But uh, this is, I think, our last bonus episode of this season. Don't cry. We know you're sad. We know you're sad. But there there still is one, one more episode after this. It's not a bonus. So look forward to that. But should we wrap up with a game? What do we call it? Name that descent. All right. It's uh, my week to stump Elizabeth. I don't think it can be done with her encyclopedic knowledge, with her dog's <laughs> breakfast of knowledge. <laughs> what does that term even mean? My dog just eats a cup of dog food. I don't understand. I think it's like awful, bad. Oh, What's so wrong with what dog the dog's eat? breakfast? Nobody wants that. No one wants to eat that. Poor dog doesn't know any better. I know. 
Okay, in any event, let's turn to our first descent. The function of the challenge is not only to eliminate extremes of partiality on both sides, but to assure the parties that the jurors before whom they try the case will decide on the basis of the evidence placed for them and not otherwise. Justice must satisfy the appearance of justice. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, is this foreshadowing Batson? Is it from Batson? Final answer. Sure. I don't know who wrote the dissent, though. It's Batson. Woohoo! Who wrote the dissent in Batson? Burger. Mm. Good old Burger. <laughs> All right. One for one. Moving on. This is, a, this is a long one. Bear with me. The court issues the history of the 14th Amendment in its reliance on the compelling state interest test, but the court adds a new wrinkle to this test by transposing it from the legal considerations associated with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to this case arising under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Unless I misapprehend the consequences of this transplanting, the court's opinion will accomplish the seemingly impossible feat of leaving this area of the law more confused than it found it. Taking something from equal protection into substantive due process. Oh, gosh. He mad. Oh, it's a he. Oh, really? It's a he? I mean, there's only <laughs> how many how many she's throughout history? Um, ooh, I don't know. He mad about know. SDP like you. You down with SDP? I don't know. Is it Scalia? Is it a Scalia? No, it's not. It's Roe. It's a descent in Roe. Oh, man. And I just recently perused so Rehnquist. It was Rehnquist, yes. Rehnquist, yeah. Do I get partial credit? Definitely. Three stars. Three Anastasia stars. Is that it? That's it. That's all I got. Was I supposed to do three? <laughs> Insert the record scratch sound here because I also prepared trivia. <laughs> Listeners, you get a bonus round of bonus trivia. Are you ready to name that descent? I'll try. The last half century has witnessed great strides toward racial equality but we have not yet realized the promise of Brown. The plurality's position, I fear, would break that promise. I must dissent. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like, so, oh no, it's a dissent. It's not a concurrence. Um, I don't know, Elizabeth. Break the promise of Brown. Someone who dissents. Was it prior? It's not, well, I mean, Batson's on the mind. Something prior to Batson? I don't know. I don't know. Strotter? I don't know. It is Justice Breyer in Parents Involved versus Seattle School District, mm. which some people have said Breyer himself considers his best dissent ever. Oh, is this in honor of Justice Breyer on, his, on the eve of his retirement? I'm not going to answer that. Okay, second question. Rather than try to patch up the death penalty's legal wounds one at a time, I would ask for full briefing on a more basic question, whether the death penalty violates the Constitution. Then this dissenter goes on to cite three constitutional defects. Taken together with my own 20 years of experience on this court, that leads me to believe that the death penalty in and of itself now likely constitutes a legally prohibited, cruel, and unusual punishment. I sense the Justice Breyer theme here. Glossop v. Gross? That is correct. Ding, That's ding, ding, his ding, best. Ding. That's his best dissent. Third. Oh, no. Third? Third. Third. Third and final. I don't know any more Breyer dissents. <laughs> The justice wrote, there was no physical appropriation of this property and raised concerns of the decision's impact on safety inspections. Quote, I do not believe that the court has made matters clearer or better. Rather than adopt a new broad rule and indeterminate exceptions, I would stick with the approach that I believe the court's case law sets forth. Better the devil we know. Cedar Point. That is correct. Sorry, not sorry, Briar. 
So now you can see why I did not answer your question. Yes, it was in salute to the retiring Justice Breyer. We will miss your... The king of long-winded questions. Long-winded <laughs> hypotheticals and general absent-minded professor ways. Your multi-factor balancing test. You will be missed, Justice Breyer. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. Am I supposed to say something? And if you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends to check out DIST. And leave us a five-star rating. Oh, the most important part. <laughs> I, you know what? Enough with the five-star ratings. Leave us leave, leave us like a, a review. I mean, five-star ratings we'll accept, but we'd also really like a review. We want to know. What do you think? What do you want to hear more about? Let's chat.